This morning, we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 15, going down through verse 21. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative, and the word of the Lord is completely without error. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence, for Christ. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we are so thankful that you have given to us your word. We're thankful for how broad your word is, how it speaks to us of so much of our life. We're thankful especially for your word that tells us how we are to live. How it encourages us to follow after you. Lord, we ask that you would bless us as we gather together here to hear your word. That you would focus our hearts and our minds upon Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, we have been speaking quite often in the last few weeks about the way in which Paul teaches. Hopefully by now you can recite from heart that in each Pauline epistle, Paul divides up his letter in two halves. Not exact halves, but two parts. And in the first part of each letter, there is a description of what God has done in Christ and who we are in Christ Because of the work of God. And then in the second part of each of his letters, Paul moves then to describe for us how we are to live in light of what God has done in Christ. And you see, this is important because proper Christian living requires knowledge. We must know what God has done, and we must know what God expects of us. But proper Christian living also something more than just knowledge. It requires wisdom. And that's what Paul is going to talk about to us this morning. He's talking about how we are to live as wise. Not as unwise, but as wise followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so this morning, I would like us to look at and answer from our text two questions. The first question is, what does it mean to be wise? It's well enough to be told that we are to be wise, but what does that mean? What does that look like? And then secondly, as Paul describes Christians as those who are filled with the Spirit, a second question comes up, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What does it look like when we are filled with the Spirit? What does it mean to be wise? And what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Let's begin then by looking at the question, what does it mean to be wise? What is wisdom? Wisdom is more than knowledge, but it is related to knowledge. We might describe wisdom encapsulated in this way of thinking. That wisdom is the application of knowledge to our lives. It is knowing not only how to speak and how to act, but it is knowing when to speak and when to act. It is living all of our lives for the glory of God. That is wisdom. To live knowing that our purpose is the glory of God. And so what does this look like? Thankfully, Paul gives us some meat on the bone, as it were. Some description of what it means to walk as not unwise, but wise. And the first thing that being wise means is taking care. We see this initially at verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Now, we have to understand that living wisely does not come without effort. Living wisely requires us to exert effort, to be thoughtful, to work hard. Because being wise is not the default direction of the world. If we think about it, for the most part, people are impulsive. People are selfish. They're not naturally wise. If we were to go out in any neighborhood and to randomly sample people, we would not find that 90% of the people were wise. We'd find them impulsive, self-centered. Now, if you think this is not true, think for just a moment about advertising. Now, you know what advertising is, don't you? Advertising is what people do to separate you from your hard-earned money. And so they have to be good at it. And so no one sticks with bad advertising. Have you ever watched a really bad ad or seen a really bad ad in a magazine and remarked how bad it is, and all of a sudden it's gone days later? Because people find out it's not effective. So advertising is designed to reach people where they are. Now... When was the last time that you saw an ad for something that said to you, now calmly, slowly, and collectively, think through all of the factors involved with this purchase and make a judicious decision about whether you should buy this product. I don't see those. What I see is, wow! 
This is the best thing ever. You've got to have it now. You can't live another day without this. It's new. We're not going to tell you how it's new, but it's new. And it's improved. We're not really sure how it's improved, but trust us. It's new. It's improved. Buy it now. Right? That's how advertisers work. They prey upon us on our tendency not to be wise. And so you have to understand that when Paul calls us to be wise, it requires effort on your part. And he says this right away. He says, look carefully. Now, notice that this is a command. Paul is not saying, you know, you might want to give this some consideration. You know, you might have a better life if you thought about being wise. No, his command comes to the church, to you and to me, to look carefully at how we live. That we must live wisely. We must be careful about our walk. Now this word careful also could be described, a synonym would be diligently. And when we do something diligently, it requires effort, concentration, and intensity. That's what Paul is saying we should have with our lives. We should not live from moment to moment. We should not go willy-nilly here or there. We should be focused on how we live, intending to live wisely. Now, this makes sense because we often take care for things that are important to us. If something's important, we're careful about it. We pay attention to it. We pay attention to our job to our education, to our children. If something is important to us, we put a lot of time and effort into it. I noticed this. Now, I didn't then, but now as I watch young people, I never realized how long it takes to comb your hair. It takes a very long amount of time. Now that I'm older and don't care as much about my appearance, it just takes me 30 seconds, and maybe it shows. But, but when something is important to you, it doesn't matter how trivial it is. You put time and effort into it, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. If it's important, you should be careful and diligent about it. And Paul is saying that far more important than a job, far more important than a school class, far more important than your appearance is your life. You must live wisely. And so the first area that Paul says that we should look into that describes to us what it means to be wise is to make the most of our time. He says this in verse 16. We are to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. Now, time is critically important, isn't it? We only get so much of it. You can't go down to the store and buy an extra 45 minutes of time. None of us can add five hours to our day, or two days to our week, or six days to our month. You just can't do it. No matter who you are, you have a limited amount of time. And it's fleeting, isn't it? You notice this, the older you get, the faster time seems to go. It's like you're in one of these cartoons where the clock starts spinning and spinning like a fan. You can't believe time has gone so quickly. And so what Paul says is, is that we need to be aware of this. 
The time is limited and fleeting, and we must make the best use of it. But it's not just the amount of time, it's also where in time we are. By God's providence, we are in this time and place. He chose for us to live in the 21st century. Not in the 1800s, not in 750 A.D., not in 500 B.C. God has chosen in His eternal plan to place you right here and right now. And our time is unique. Our time has its unique challenges. And our time also has unique opportunities. And often this goes together. There are so many people that lament the everywhere nature of our technology in our day and age. People don't talk anymore. They don't sit around the dinner table anymore. Everyone has a device in their hand. Children don't play outside. They're busy playing on devices. That's a unique challenge that our grandparents and great-grandparents did not face. But at the same time, it presents a unique opportunity. Could you imagine what the people of the Reformation would have given to carry around the entire Bible in their pocket? And to be able to listen to preachers any time they wanted, even in the middle of the night? You see, we are blessed with that unique opportunity. We could send missionaries around the globe on a day's notice. We could translate languages and bring the Bible to people in their language much more quickly than ever could have been done. You see, our time is unique to us. We have to remember that. It doesn't do us any good to wish for another time. This is something that we fall prey to. Some of us are tempted to wish for the good old days. If we just were living in the 1950s, or the 1880s, or some other time. Others of us don't wish to live in the past. We wish we lived in some kind of perfect future, a hundred years from now, when poverty would be abolished, when sickness will be done away with, when there'll be no more cancer. But the truth of the matter is, God has designed you to live right now. It is the perfect time for you to be living. Do you know how I know that? Because our God is all wise and all knowing and all powerful. And it is His desire, plan and decree for you to be living right here and right now. This is something that is a challenge for us as Reformed Presbyterians. I think sometimes we believe if we could just have lived in the time of the Reformation, or if we just lived at the Westminster Assembly, then everything would be just fine and would be perfect. There'd be no conflict. We would do everything the right way. But the truth is, is that God has placed us here for a reason. We need to determine what that is. We need to make the most of our time. We need not to pine away for other times. I will say to you, I don't think you would have enjoyed wearing the clothing that they wore in the days of the Westminster Assembly. I don't think you would have enjoyed their food. I think you'd have been very impatient trying to get from point A to point B. Stop thinking about other times. and Think about what God has done for you now. And there are also... Two ways in the Bible to talk about time. So much so that there are two Greek words that are actually both translated 
time in the Bible. The first is the way we normally think of time in chronology. If I say to you, do you have some time to visit with me this afternoon? What I mean is, do you have 30 minutes? Do you have 60 minutes that are free? But there's another way that the Bible talks about time. It talks about it in the sense of the right time, the critical time, the important time. And that's the word that Paul's using here. It's when someone comes up to you and asks you something, you say, now is not the right time. Later. It's critical. What Paul says to us is we are to redeem the time because it is important, it is critical. We are to make the best use of our time. We are not designed to stand around and wait until glory comes. God has us here for a reason. He has work for us to do. We are here to glorify Him, and so we are to buy back this time, redeem it, make it its best use. And we're to do this every opportunity that we are given. We do it because the days are evil, Paul says. Now, before you immediately jump and say, you're right, Pastor, 2016 is horrible. These are the most evil days in the world. Look at all the problems in our culture. Look at all the problems in our country. Look at all the problems with our elections. Look at all these problems. The days are evil. I want to remind you of something. When Paul wrote that, he wasn't talking about 2016. He was talking about his day. You see, the days are always evil. Not because of who's in office. Not because of what the culture is saying. Not because of what people are doing. The days are always evil because we live in a fallen world. In a world filled with sin. With people who are selfish. Who seek their own good. Who do not love one another. Who wrong one another because they are sinners. And so what Paul says is for you in your time right now. Redeem the time. Redeem it from the evil that is around you. Be a realist. Understand that things are not so great in the world. But that doesn't mean that God cannot be glorified. It doesn't mean that we ought not to serve the Lord. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. You may recall that Jonathan Edwards made a series of resolutions. More than a hundred of them. If you'd like to see them, they're out on the wall in the hallway out there. And whenever I talk about Edward's resolutions, it makes me feel very bad and lazy because he was in his early 20s when he did this. Something I couldn't do in my mid-40s. But one of his resolutions that I think is on point was this. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Now stop and think about that for a moment. Could you imagine what Christ Church would look like if each and every one of us resolved to use every moment of our time most profitably? Can you imagine what Houston would look like if every man, woman, and child used every moment of their time in the most profitable fashion? Could you imagine what our nation would look like if the church resolved to redeem the time that it had been given? 
You see, this is what Paul calls us to. To make the best use of our time. The second area in which Paul discusses wisdom is understanding God's will. He says this in verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, Paul is using strong language here. He's telling us not to be foolish. And he is reminding us that the height of foolishness, of folly, is willfulness. That is, seeking our own at the expense of others. And we're not to be foolish, we're instead to be wise to seek God's will. Now let me see if I could give you an illustration here. When was the last time you were out somewhere and saw a child throwing a temper tantrum, rolling around on the floor, screaming and yelling, and said to yourself, that is an excellent, wise action. That child is sure to get their way. They're just doing just the right thing to convince their parents. Now, what do you do? You don't even want to be in the presence of that, right? You kind of walk away, hope it'll go away. right? It's the height of folly. Now, it expresses itself in that kind of obvious physical way with children. But adults can be no better in their hearts. I've got to have that car or I don't know if I can live another day. If I can't buy that house, I don't know that I'll survive. You see, it's when we think we need things, when we put ourselves at the center of the universe, that we become foolish. We substitute our will for God's will. But you see, what Paul wants us to do instead is to comprehend the will of God. Now, that means first and foremost... Studying the Bible. You don't need to wait for some kind of mystical experience to come on top of you. The way you understand the will of God is you hear from Him in His Word. He has told you what His will is. And so you study His Word. You don't need to have a mystical experience. You don't need to be a special kind of Christian. All you need to do is to hear God in His Word and believe. And what Paul wants us to do as we hear God is to put God first. Now, it's not just that we find out what the will of God is. This is not a research paper. Go through the Bible and list the 20 things that are a part of the will of God and put it in a folder and put it away. No, we are to prioritize our lives according to the will of God. We're to put God first. Because you see... This is how we are most like Jesus. That's why Jesus in the garden in Luke 22 can say, Not my will, but your will be done. It's why Jesus, when his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. He taught them to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, we have to understand the will of God. But there is more. Wisdom requires us to see the application of God's will in our time. The foundation of understanding God's will is the Bible. But we apply those biblical principles in accordance with the providence of God. 
Because we are living in a certain time, in a certain place, with a certain spouse, or certain children, or certain parents. And we have to use wisdom in how we relate to others, what we emphasize. You see, that is wisdom. It's looking at the providence of God, that He is in control, and the will of God in the Word of God, and making that practically apply to our lives. We must be thinking about how God would have us spend our time for His glory. Not our comfort or our glory. And this, quite frankly, requires us to step out of our mindset. Because far too often we plan the entirety of our lives around us. Where we're going to go to school, who we're going to marry when we'll have children, where we will live, how we will save money. It all depends on us. I'm saving money because I want to live my retirement, not because I seek to help others. If we change our mindset to put God at the center of our life, then we will understand the will of God. One commentator, James Montgomery Boyce, puts it this way that I think is just a wonderful word picture. He says, wisdom consists in perceiving where God is going and then jumping on his bandwagon. That's wisdom. We see what God is doing, where he is at work, where he is moving, and we want to be a part of that. We want to help in that. We want to serve the Lord in that. We put his will first. The third area of wisdom concerns our self-control. We see this in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You see, the Lord does not want us to be under the influence of other things. And it is actually foolish of us to think we are independent when we are enslaved to something else. And so Paul here gives us a direct command. Do not get drunk. There is no way around this. There's no timing of this. There's no caveat to this. Paul tells us this because we are not to be under the influence of substance. Now, notice here what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, do not ever have a drink. If he were saying that, he would be contradicting himself. Because Paul tells Timothy in his letter to him that you are to take some wine for your stomach. If Paul were saying that it were a sin or wrong to ever drink, then we have great difficulty with our Lord making wine at the wedding of Cana. Historically, some Christians have taken this approach to say that any drinking is wrong. Not just wrong For them, not just wrong in a circumstance, which certainly could be the case, but is wrong for everyone at all times and in all circumstances. And that is not what Paul is saying. But, let's not swing to the opposite extreme. Because some have come to this conclusion and said, you're right, drinking isn't a sin. Whoop! I can drink whenever I want, as much as I want. I can make it the main focus of my social life. I can make it about everything that I do. 
There are churches that have a main focus of their ministry being craft brewing rather than evangelism or missions. You see, we can swing in the opposite direction as well. And they would be ignoring Paul's command here. Because Paul's command is very clear that we are not to be drunk. We are not to be under the influence of other things if we are to be wise. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher who was also a physician, put it this way. He said that alcohol is to be termed as a depressant. That's medically what it is. And so we don't want to depress our way of thinking, depress our action. We don't want to depress our ability to serve the Lord. We cannot allow ourselves to be under its influence because eventually what drunkenness does is it dehumanizes us. It makes us more like animals than people. Paul says that it is debauchery. Now the word here for debauchery It has the connotation of being wasteful. It is a waste. But it also has the connotation of being reckless, of being out of control, of being wild. And what Paul says is, when you are drunk, you are out of control. You are the furthest from wisdom that you can possibly be. You are being reckless and out of control. Instead, Paul says, we are to be under the influence of the Spirit to be filled with the Spirit. If alcohol makes us more like animals, the Spirit makes us most like men. It makes us most like the ultimate human, our Lord Jesus Christ. To be filled with the Spirit makes us the most human we can be. Now what does this mean then? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Now, notice something important first about Paul's statement here. Be filled with the Spirit. The first is that it is a command. It's not an option. It's not something that Paul's throwing out there if you wanted to be a better than average Christian. It's something that we are commanded to do by God. But I want you to notice something else. It is also a plural command. So it's directed to everyone. It's not just directed to some, that we have some spirit-filled Christians. Every Christian is to be filled with the Spirit. If Paul were here in Texas, he would say, Y'all be filled with the Spirit. Each and every one of you. Thirdly, notice that the command is passive. Be filled with the Spirit. Paul's not setting up some seven or eight or twelve step program so you could be Spirit filled. It's not a formula that you follow along by rote. It's about the heart. And notice lastly that this command is in the present tense. Be filled now. It is a command that is present, which means it is a continual command. Don't just be filled with the Spirit Once, don't just seek to have a moment of glory or clarity. You are to be filled with the Spirit all the time. So, what then does being filled with the Spirit look like? We have the command. Paul describes what is going on in four participles that follow. Verbal adjectives that tell us what being filled with the Spirit looks like. 
in three categories. And the first is a set of two in verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Now you see, this is critically important. Paul is giving us these participles, these descriptions of what it means to be filled with the Spirit because we're not seeking some kind of special experience. What we are doing is seeking to see the filling of the Spirit in how we live each and every day. This is what we do. And so Paul begins with joy. With a joy that comes from fellowship with other believers. We are to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Making melody with our heart. Now this shows us the importance of being together as Christians. Because in order to be filled with the Spirit, we have to have opportunity to address one another, to communicate with one another, because the Spirit works in the church. And this is a joy that comes to us. There is an element of teaching here. There is an element of encouraging one another here. There is a joy that also comes from being together in worship We are to sing and make melody to the Lord with all our heart, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Our hearts are pointed toward heaven as we are filled with the Spirit. There is a great connection between our community and worshiping God. This is what Paul is saying. When we sing God's praise, we also bless one another. Now let me take just a moment here for a brief aside on singing. And I do this because this is one of the two most famous passages in all of the New Testament on song. The other is found in Colossians 3. I want you to notice first that skill is not primary here. It's not our ability to sing that is important. I know... For many of us, we are so thankful for the psalm that says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord. You see, Paul tells us to sing to each other, not because we are good at singing, not because we are classically trained, but because it is a part of community and worship. This is what God has called us to. Notice that the attitude is what is critical. We are to make melody in our heart. It doesn't say make melody with your tongue or with your lungs. The main emphasis on us for us is the heart. I experienced this as the Lord was working on my heart to bring me to himself. I was in graduate school at the University of Chicago, attending a Bible study. We were studying the Gospel of Mark. I was also, at the time, studying Latin and Greek full-time. And I would go to the Bible studies, and people would bring their translations, King James or New King James or NASB or NIV, and I would bring my Greek Bible. And I would translate it on the fly, because I could. But one of the things that I noticed was I always tried seeming unintentionally, to show up about ten minutes late so that I missed the singing at the beginning of the Bible study. 
And I didn't realize why that was in my heart until the Lord got a hold of me. You can't understand and experience that joy in the Lord that comes out in praise unless Jesus has grabbed you and your life. And so I want to encourage you, if you're a little bit off key, don't worry about it. If too many of us sing that are way off key, we'll mic Mary Bosma. Don't worry about it. Let the joy of your heart burst forth in song. Now, what is it that we sing? You may have wondered when you first came to Christ Church, why do we have these handouts that are stuck in our bulletin, that have these psalms in them that I've never heard of? They don't even really have names. They're just numbers. Psalm 98A, 103B, 22C. What does that mean? Why do we sing these psalms? We sing these psalms because God tells us to in His Word. Right there. To sing psalms. God has given us psalms in the Psalter that we might express the whole range of emotion in the Christian life because the psalms are filled with joy and gladness and despondency and despair and bitterness and hopelessness and hopefulness. And so we have a song for every occasion and every depth of the heart in the psalms. But that's not all we sing. We sing more than psalms. We sing hymns and spiritual songs. Now some will say to you that that only means we should sing psalms. That those are three different categories of psalms. You may or may not have heard that argument. I just want to tell you that one of the words here is hymn. Now I know you think what a hymn is is something in a book that's blue or red. But Paul is speaking, writing... To Christians where? In Ephesus, which is an entirely Greek town. And the word him had 3,000 years of history behind it in Greek thought. Homer wrote hymns. Hesiod wrote hymns. A hymn was something that you composed to praise life and the gods. And Christians co-opted that and wrote songs of praise. So we are to sing psalms, we are to sing hymns, and we are to sing spiritual songs. And what that means is the content of our praise must be spiritual. It must be founded on the Word of God. We must be careful. We don't sing heresy, even if it sounds good. We don't sing flippantly. We sing to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is when our hearts burst forth with joy. Now remember the context here of singing. It is addressing one another. It is building one another up in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so our song, our praise, is a means of uniting us, of building us together. You can only sing with one voice. It wouldn't sound very good if I said, y'all on this side sing Amazing Grace. And y'all on this side sing holy, holy, holy. It would sound like a mess. It would be neither holy nor amazing. But you see, we are called to be together to unite our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ in praise. There is a second sign of the Spirit's work that Paul talks about. And that second sign is thankfulness. Look at verse 20. 
giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is a sign of the Spirit at work when we are thankful. Now, the opposite of thankfulness is grumbling, is ingratitude. And this was the besetting sin of Israel. We don't have anything to drink. We don't have anything to eat. We don't like what you gave us to eat. We don't want to go over here. We don't want to go over there. Could you imagine living with the Israelites? If the Israelites were your child, I think it would be paddle time. How ungrateful can you be? You know, they come right up to the promised land. And they say, we don't want to go in. We don't think it's good enough. It's too much effort. And so God has to take an entire generation away. Not just because they were ungrateful, but because that showed the Spirit was not at work in them. Thankfulness is a sign of being filled with the Spirit. We should, Paul says, always and for everything be thankful. Now, let's not take Paul too literally. We shouldn't be thankful for evil. We shouldn't be thankful for sin. But we should at all times be thankful for everything that is the gift of God. To remember that we receive things at His hand. That He is our God. That we are His servants. There is a context to being thankful. We are to be thankful to God the Father who loves us. And we are to be thankful in the name of Jesus Christ. That is how God has revealed Himself to us. Our thankfulness centers around the blessings that we receive from God. Now, I am not saying here that if you are struggling right now, you should just be thankful for that. I'm not telling you you have to be thankful you have cancer or that you have to have an operation or that you have chronic pain. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that in the midst of those struggles and trials... If you're short on money, if you need a job, if your children are a bit wayward, you need to be thankful still to the Lord and all of the other things He gives to you. Because God is still good in the midst of that. And our tendency is to focus on the negative. Right? We have great homes and great families and good friends and loved ones. And the car breaks down and what happens? Oh, life's over. Why is God doing this to me? I can't possibly make it. Do you know all the trouble this is? And we forget all of the blessings that God has showered upon us. Again, I'm not saying you should jump for joy that the car broke down. That's not a good thing. But remember all of the other blessings that come to you in Christ. The third thing that we see from Paul is that being filled with the Spirit means that we are to be submissive. Now, this is because we reflect the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a humble spirit. Jesus puts it this way in John chapter 16. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. But then He says, He will not speak on His authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. Have you thought about that? 
The third person of the Trinity. God, a very God, only gets to speak what he is authorized to speak. Now, it's not because he's not God. It's because he's humbled himself in a similar way that Jesus humbled himself to become a man. The Spirit has voluntarily determined only to speak those things that are given to him by Jesus. And this is why the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, but also patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. You see, the Spirit is a humble spirit. And so Paul is being very general here where he talks about us submitting to one another. He's not talking about specific relationships. Parents and children, husbands and wives, workers and employers. He's going to talk about those relationships in the following parts of chapter 5 and 6. So the pastor is not telling you that you need to go out now and do everything that anyone tells you to do. Or you can order people around expecting that they have to be submissive in every single thing. What Paul is describing here is a way of life. It's an attitude of the heart that we realize that God is great. And we should be self-denying. We should display the Spirit in our lives. We should be focused on how we can bless others, not on how we can be blessed ourselves. And the reason for this, Paul says, is out of reverence for Christ. It's our knowledge of who we once were that makes us submissive. It's our knowledge of what Jesus has done that makes us submissive. All of our lives are to be focused on doing God's will for His glory. Do you want to live wisely? Being wise means knowing what Jesus has done. Being wise means knowing the will of God. And being wise means seeking by God's grace to live in such a way that we glorify the Lord. That's what it means to be wise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your encouragement to us, for the reminder of how we are to live And for the reminder also of your provision to us in Christ and by your Holy Spirit. Bless us, O Lord. Help us to walk wisely, that you might get all the glory. This we ask in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen.